As I said, I, I serve here as the teaching pastor on staff, which means that I, I wear a couple of different hats. My wife and I manage our church's podcast, The Stone Table, and then I also work with a really talented team of writers over at the Baylife Resource page, and they every week compose articles that help you engage more deeply with scripture and theology and what it means to follow Jesus. One of the other things that I get to do that I absolutely love is that I teach our church's theological education classes. We, we call it foundations here at Baylife, and we just finished an eight-week class on church history. We had almost 100 people logged on to Zoom, uh, which was pretty impressive. You could swipe for pages and pages and pages and never see the same face. And so I'm so grateful for all those opportunities that I get as I serve in the capacity of teaching pastor, but without a doubt, the most important thing that I do here at the church is to teach God's word. And that's exactly what we'll be doing this morning as we're stepping into a new series together, one that we're calling Joy to the World. And this is a series that'll run for the next four weeks or so as we begin the journey towards Christmas. And when we talk about Christmas, I think it's pretty widely agreed upon that this is everyone's favorite holiday. Well, maybe not everyone, but most everyone's favorite holiday. And, and, and that's understandable because in many ways, Christmas brings together so many of the different facets of our lives that bring us a sense of joy and happiness. And that theme of joy is one that we'll be exploring together over these next four weeks in this series. It's with that in mind that we asked you all, what are some things that bring you joy? We asked this question on our Facebook and Instagram and our social media, and we got some great answers, uh, many of which I can relate to deeply. Uh, one of my favorite answers came from Allison Williams. When asked, what brings you joy, she said, her cat. And I said, yes and amen. But I will say that, that we bought a Christmas sweater for our cat, and I don't think that anybody in our house will be experiencing any sense of joy when we try to put it on. Uh, Peggy Price mentioned that the Christmas music and the beautiful lights that are beginning to pop up all around town are sources of joy for her during this season. Carrie mentioned that Hallmark movies bring her joy, and while I can't relate to that, I certainly know a lot of people who can. Um, I know Hallmark sort of rolls out its holiday filmography right around this time of year. And many, many, many people said their family. Carrie mentioned not just Hallmark movies, but her daughters as a source of joy. Melanie Langston said the same thing. Her, her family was a source of deep joy for her. It's no wonder that Christmas is so dearly loved by so many. It brings together so many of the things that we cherish. Of course, this season, this particular iteration of Christmas does feel different than it has in the past. I was reminded of this last night. My wife and I made the decision to go get coffee and walk around Curtis Hickson Park in downtown Tampa. And as we were walking to the park, we, the, the tree was set up, the, the trees that were actually in the ground, not the Christmas tree brought from up north, were all wrapped in lights. And it was, it was a beautiful experience. They had the, the skate rink set up, which neither of us were going to attempt because that would result in an ER visit. But towards the water, they had something set up called Christmas Village, which is a, a series of booths that are different little shops selling knickknacks that I'm sure are overpriced, but they're a lot of fun to look at. And there was a, a whole crowd of people sort of gathered around Christmas Village. And so as, as we walked from the, the entrance of the park and we passed all the lights and we got closer to the crowd, without thinking, we both took our mask out of our pocket and put it on our face. It was almost muscle memory. 
We just knew instinctively this is what you do when you walk into a crowd of tightly packed people. And it struck me as this happened that, that we had been to Curtis Hickson Park last year for Christmas. We had walked into the tightly packed crowd of people at Christmas Village last year. Long before these were in short supply. Long before this was our muscle memory reflex whenever we saw more than a handful of people gathered together. And it was in that moment I, I, was realized, or I realized how much had changed. And I wonder if this isn't a microcosm of, of what we're all sort of experiencing as a society in this particular season. We're coming to a familiar holiday with familiar traditions, but things don't quite feel the same. We're not the same as we were this time last year. We've come through an unprecedented season of loss, a pandemic, divisive elections, an important national conversation about racism, the exhaustion of lockdowns, a term that none of us had ever heard before, Zoom fatigue, which all of us at some point or another have now experienced. And no matter where you land on the political aisle, no matter what your opinion of lockdowns might be, I think we can all agree on this. 2020 has not been anybody's year. Like I know uh, December 31st, we all kind of get ourselves psyched up for the year to come, and this is my year. This is the year I'm really going to just take hold of everything life has for me. And all of us, I think, are looking back on the new, those New Year's resolutions and saying, that was naive. <laughs> if only I had known. <laughs> I don't know that I would have been so geared up and ready for 2020. We've acquired a new vocabulary, terms like social distancing, crushing the curve, herd immunity. These are phrases none of us had heard before March, and now you can't go five minutes without hearing these concepts brought up. And into all of this mess and all of this frustration, Christmas strides, this holiday whose origins go back well over a thousand years with all of its steady and stable traditions and it seems stubbornly unwilling to change in spite of all that our culture has been through. But I wonder if that's not exactly what we need right now. I wonder if the stability of this season is exactly what we need after a year like 2020. I'm reminded of Nicholas Christakis's book that he, in which he chronicles sort of the, the spread of the coronavirus, and he, he mentions that it was probably present in our country in December of 2019, which means that we were dealing with this last Christmas and none of us even knew it. And here we are one year later. I think of the words of the famous poet T.S. Eliot in Four Quartets. The end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And we've come back to Christmas one year later. And all that this holiday represents for Christians. But I wonder if this year hasn't given us fresh eyes to see the power of the message of Christmas, maybe for the very first time. To see anew the good news of these words that many of us have sung for all of our lives. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. And that's what we want to we explore together over these next four weeks is this theme of joy and how it forms and informs and shapes us. What does it look like to truly have joy this year? 
What is biblical joy? How does the Bible call us to joy? What's the root of that joy? And ultimately, I think we'll see that our joy as Christians is rooted in a concrete event that Christmas reminds us of, and that's the coming of the Lord Jesus. So with that in mind, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, chapter 30. We'll be in verses one through five, and as you turn there, let me just read our passage for us that we'll be in this morning. It says this, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The psalm begins by by giving us sort of a, a description of the context in which it was written. Most of the psalms don't tell us the specific life circumstances that, that prompted the author to compose the song in front of us. And this is no different. We're told that it's a song of David. It's written by David from David's perspective. And we're told the context in which David wants it sung. He's written it to be sung at the dedication of the temple. But here's what we know from Scripture. David didn't live to see that day. Da- David was told by the Lord that he could not build the temple because he was a man of bloodshed. It would have to be done by his son Solomon. And so he composes this song to be sung by a generation far beyond his own, to be sung by a people who will not, that he will not live to see. And it may feel strange that this is the song to be sung at the dedication of the temple. We don't have sort of a modern equivalent. But if you read in 1 Kings about the dedication of the temple, it was this monumental event in the life of God's people. All of these years of waiting and longing for God to dwell among them and him doing this temporarily in the tabernacle, it's, it's finally come to fruition in this permanent dwelling place of God in the heart of his people. It's this massive cause for celebration. And yet the song that David writes for these people to sing is kind of a downer. It's a little bit of a bummer. And you can almost imagine him giving it to his son Solomon and going, I want you to sing this one day when you build that temple. And Solomon looking at it and going, okay, dad, and kind of putting it in with the other papers. But there's a logic behind this. I think it'll make sense as we explore the rest of the passage. David begins in in verse one. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. I wonder if you noticed sort of the the parallelism that's going on here. David says, God, I will extol you. Other translations say, I will uplift you because you have lifted me up. Most scholars believe that David had gone through some bout of sickness, and that's what prompted the writing of this song. He hovered on the edge of death, and God has brought him back from the precipice. He's raised David up from his sickbed, and David says, because you lifted me up, I will now lift you up. You raised me up, and now I will lift my voice to you. And this raises, I think, an important point for all of us. God's deliverance is never just about us. 
It's about the glory of his name. God doesn't just deliver us for our own sake. He does it for the sake of his name so that having raised us up, we can declare his goodness and his worth and his faithfulness. And that, the, the same thing is true for you. Whatever good God has done for you, whatever God has brought you through, maybe it's sickness like David, maybe it's a season of, of trouble in your marriage, maybe it's a, a period of financial difficulty, however God has lifted you up out of the pit, it is not just for you. It is so you can declare his goodness and his faithfulness. But notice that David writes this song about God's deliverance, and he intends for other people to sing it. He, he writes it to be sung by the congregation gathered when the temple is dedicated. And that's probably why he's so vague. Most scholars would say this is probably about a bout of sickness that David had, but he doesn't name the disease. He, he, he doesn't name his symptoms. He's incredibly vague about what it is he experienced, only that he was in the depths and God raised him up. It's kind of a genius to this. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of finding out what your favorite song was actually about, but it kind of ruins it, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I had this experience when I was in high school. Without a doubt, for the last 15 years, my absolute favorite band is a band called Jimmy Eat World. They're like a 90s emo band that, that really rose to prominence in the early 2000s, but anybody who really knows Jimmy Eat World knows the best records came out between 1990 and 1999. And you can debate me on that in the corner if you want. <laughs> but on their most famous record, it's, a, it's an album called Clarity, uh, there is a song called Table for Glasses. And to give you an idea of, of how long ago this record came out, put it in context, I first found this album at the CD section of Brandon Regional Library. I don't think Brandon Library has a CD section anymore. And then I took it home to my Windows computer, because this was before everybody thought Macs were cool, and I ripped the tracks onto my iTunes and I put it onto my iPod Shuffle, which is something that there are people in this room who have never heard of. And then there are others in this room who think, you know, iPod Shuffle, man, I remember vinyl. But I ripped this album onto my iPod Shuffle, and the first song on this album I loved as an angsty teenager. It's called Table for Glasses, and the chorus is very simple. It says, it happens too fast to make sense of it. And I was convinced at 14, 15 years old that this was about some sort of a whirlwind relationship, one that came and went not that I'd ever experienced anything like that, but man, I sang those words with such angst in my $1,000 pickup truck driving to high school. I was like, I identify with this song. This is, this is me in a nutshell. And then a friend told me what the song was actually about. The, the singer of this band had gone to an art exhibit in Arizona, and when he was done looking at the paintings, he'd gone outside and sat down on the steps, and a performance artist approached him, and she set up a table, and she placed glasses on it, hence the song title. She made eye contact with him, and then she packed up the table and she packed up the glasses. Now I'm sure there was some deep-seated significance to this, it's what performance art is, it's meaningful action. But for a 14-year-old, I said, what the heck, man? That ruins that song for me. <laughs> it's no longer about this angsty thing, it's about art, and I'm 14, I don't know what art is. 
I still read comic books, man. <laughs> and it made it much harder to sing the song once I knew what it was really about. I think David, in his wisdom, chooses to be vague. He chooses to be vague about what the pit is and what God saves him from. But he expects other people to be able to sing this song and to be encouraged by it. And that that underscores something important. David believes that that all of God's people will be able to sing this song and sing this this story about what God has done for David and it will minister to them in their own context. And that sort of highlights the fact that whenever God delivers us, whenever God brings us through something, it is so that his saving power can be shared with others. What God does in David's life, it isn't just for David to keep to himself. He's supposed to share it with God's people. That's why he puts it in song form. That's why he makes it vague enough that other people can hear it and sing it and identify with it. Because God's salvation, God's deliverance, doesn't just belong to us. It's for us to share with others as they face their time of trial. One of the things that has made this Christmas feel even more different and even more difficult than the previous few years is that my family is navigating a cancer diagnosis. In August, uh, my dad went in for a routine examination and was told that he had a large tumor and needed to prepare for immediate chemotherapy and radiation and surgery. Now, by God's grace, his body seems to be responding and we are hopeful that through the hands of doctors, the Lord will bring about healing. But I'll tell you, in Christmas of 2019, we never could have imagined that this is where we would be. One of the things that has enabled my wife and I to walk through this season is that there are people in this church, there are people on staff here who have been willing to come alongside us and share with us the way that God raised them up as they walked through this pit. It's been conversations like the ones that we had with Scott and Darnisha Taylor over dinner where they shared how God was gracious to them when Scott was diagnosed. It's conversations like the one that I had with Jody Sauer as she stopped by my office one morning and shared God's kindness to her as she walked through cancer in her family. It's the phone calls with Mark and Tom as they shared their experiences of God's grace walking through cancer with their own parents. And the the outcome in all of these situations has been unique, but each of these people has recognized that the mercy of God in their own pain was not just for them, but it was meant to be shared. And in sharing it with us, they have given us the ability to trust in God's goodness even when life grows difficult. So so hear me, has God brought you through a, a trial or a tribulation or sickness or loss? If he has done that, it's not just for you. It doesn't just belong to you, it belongs to the body of Christ. So that, so that you can testify to God's goodness and somebody who is still in the pit can hear it and take heart. And David writes this song so that other people can sing when they find themselves in the pit. They can say, he was faithful to David, he will be faithful to us. But maybe you hear this song. Maybe you hear what this song was written in response to, David's experience with sickness, and you feel like you can't sing it. I mean, not really. You don't have the experience of being delivered from the pit. The cancer 
didn't go away, it just got worse. The divorce papers have been finalized. You've already lost your job. Maybe this is the first holiday that you're experiencing without someone you love. And it feels like you're still in the pit and to sing this song, you would have to do it with your fingers crossed behind your back. But even if all these things are true of you, if you are a Christian, I believe that there is a very real sense in which God has still raised you up. A very real sense in which you can still sing this song honestly. Because that's exactly the event that the Christmas season speaks to for us as Christians. You know, very often when we talk about salvation, I'm afraid that we start the story a little bit too late. And what I mean by that is this. When somebody would ask a question like, how did Jesus save us? We say things like he died on the cross for our sins, which is absolutely true. But it's kind of like jumping into a movie in the last 30 minutes and expecting to be able to make sense of the whole storyline. Historically, Christians have not just emphasized the, the cross and the resurrection as being how God saves us, but they've emphasized the beginning of the gospel, the incarnation. This event that we mark in Christmas, that in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, takes on himself our human nature. And Christians for 2,000 years have said that is just as important to salvation. That is just as central to how Jesus saves us as the cross. Early on in the pandemic, my wife and I decided that we would go through my favorite series of movies that she hadn't yet seen, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, I I know that in saying that, I've immediately stamped nerd across my forehead. And I'll do my best to not show you how much of a nerd I am. But I love this series of films. And for all of our relationship, I was quoting it and referencing it, and she hadn't seen it. And we said, well, we got some time on our hands, so let's let's go ahead and watch them. Because they're long movies. They're like three and a half hours long each. And one of my favorite scenes comes at the end of the final film. Without getting into the details of hobbits and wizards and elves, uh, two of the main characters, Frodo and Sam, have been on this quest. They have faced trials and conflicts and threats, all with the intention of climbing this mountain that they've reached on their journey, this volcano, and throwing this evil magic ring into the fires of the volcano, which is the only place it can be destroyed, and at the foot of the mountain, Frodo collapses. He's beaten, he's battered, he's discouraged. He can't go on. And this is when his friend steps in, and he utters this iconic line. He says, I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. And he, and he places him on his back, and he carries him up this mountain to a place that he could never have reached on his own. His strength is too weak. And this is an imperfect picture, as all pictures are. We always fall short when we try to capture the fullness of what God has done, but it imperfectly lays hold of something that is true, that we celebrate in the Christmas season, that we also, in our fallen nature, are beaten and battered and incapable of ascending the mount of God. And yet in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the eternal Son of God takes our nature onto himself, and he carries it 
sinlessly through his life in perfect obedience. He carries it to the cross and with it, he descends into death. But the gospel doesn't end in the death of Christ because that same man, Christ Jesus, is raised from the dead and that's not even the end of the gospel because Jesus is not simply raised from the dead, he ascends into heaven and is seated now at the right hand of the Father. And that matters because at no point is our human nature left behind in this process. He carries it all the way to the right hand of God so that at this very moment, There is a human being, the fully human, fully divine son, seated at the right hand of Father. And if you believe the gospel, you have been united by faith to Jesus so that that story is your story. That is your story. That you were buried with Christ. That you descended and you were raised with Christ up out of the pit of death. This is why Paul can say in his letters, we are already seated with him in heaven because he has carried our nature with him up the mount of God and into the presence of the Father. So I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what this season has for you. I don't know if the diagnosis will ever get better. I don't know if the marriage will ever be restored. I pray by God's grace that it is. But you can sing this song without your fingers crossed behind your back because God in Christ has raised you up out of the pits. He has raised you up out of the depths. You can sing it with greater fullness than David ever could. David goes on in verse four and says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. He invites the congregation to sing. And here you can picture the people gathered around the assembly of the temple crying out. Give thanks to his holy name for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That phrase joy, that idea is one that is all over our Christmas songs. I mean, we named this series after one of those songs. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Of course, it feels difficult after a year like 2020 to have anything that resembles joy in a world of lockdowns and pandemics and racial injustice and political division. How do we have joy in the face of something like that? But I think that question actually shows that that we have imbibed a a vision of joy that's out of step with the Bible. N.T. Wright, the great New Testament theologian, points out that often in our culture, the idea of joy is described as a feeling in response to our circumstances. Joy arises in us when things go well. Joy arises in us when we get what we want. But he says over and against this, joy in the Bible is not a feeling. It's a way of approaching the world that is informed by God's saving actions. Joy is more like the love that blossoms in a marriage. It's not just a feeling, it's a choice. But it's a choice that is held up by a covenant. 
You and your spouse have made a vow before God and that vow sustains your actions towards one another even when your feelings and your circumstances change. In the same way, our joy as Christians, our ability to to view the world with hope even when everything seems hopeless, it rests on a covenant. It rests on the new covenant sealed in the blood of Jesus in which he raised us up out of the pit of sin and he seated us in the heavenly places. And this is why the Apostle Paul doesn't just suggest joy, he commands it. He doesn't just say, rejoice if things are going well for you to the Philippians. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. It's not a conditional statement. Why? Paul writes this from prison, by the way. So if if we're playing by the world's definition of joy, he has no reason to do so, but that's not the foundation of his joy. The foundation of Paul's joy is not rooted in what's passing away. It's rooted in the finished work of Jesus, which cannot be moved. And so we rejoice always. Make no mistake. Jesus changes everything causes us to return even to the familiar words of this psalm and find in them a deeper meaning than we might have seen before. When I was in high school, there was a filmmaker that was pretty popular, and he's since kind of not been as popular. His name was M. Night Shyamalan, and uh, he, in the early 2000s, he produced a number of movies that did really well. Signs was one of them. Um, a Sixth Sense was the other one. And I'm just going to ruin the plot line to A Sixth Sense because you've had 20 years to watch it. <laughs> so spoiler alert. Uh, a Sixth Sense basically follows the, the story of a child psychologist, Bruce Willis. And throughout the film, it seems like he's in sort of a, a really unhappy marriage. It doesn't seem like his wife is really willing to talk to him or acknowledge him. And he's assigned to the case of an elementary school boy who claims that he can see dead people. And so throughout the film, Bruce Willis is sort of counseling him and helping him walk through uh, this experience. Until at the end of the movie, you find out Bruce Willis is a dead person. And that's why his wife isn't talking to him, because she can't see him. And when this movie came out, once people reached the end, they immediately went back and bought a ticket to see the movie again. Because in light of the ending... Everything they had just seen changed. They said, oh my gosh, now that I know where the story is going, I need to go back and see it in light of where it was going all along. Students of film talk about retrospective viewing, that you're viewing the film in light of its ending, and that changes your experience. The same thing happens in Scripture. When we see that all of it is pointing towards the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of Jesus, everything that comes before that changes. It's not that we see something that wasn't there before, it's that we see where it was going all along. And it's in light of the work of Jesus that we can hear this psalm with fresh ears. So let me read it to you in light of the incarnation, the death, the resurrection of your Lord. David says, I will extol you, O Lord. For you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. 
Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. In the person and the work of Jesus, this song of David reaches its crescendo. Because in Christ, God has drawn us up. He's heard our cries and brought healing for our sin. He's brought us out of Sheol. He's raised us up from the pit. He's dispersed the clouds of night. And he has brought us to a place of joy which is unshakable. So we come again to Christmas. 2020. In many ways, it feels like everything has changed. There's a sense in which that's true. But the truth of what we celebrate in Christmas has not changed. My hope is that in this strange season that we've lived through, perhaps we have gained a fresh perspective to be able to sing the same words of that familiar song anew. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Because no matter how culture twists and turns, the Lord has come. And that changes everything. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you in a variety of circumstances. Some of us with heavy hearts mourning. Some of us with light light hearts rejoicing but all of us in desperate need of Christ. Lord, remind us afresh in this season of the steady and sure foundation for joy that we have in Jesus. Open our lips to sing your praises as we rejoice in what you've done. We ask these things in Christ's name. And we say amen. Would you stand and continue to sing with us in response to the joy that we have in Christ? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And Father, we thank you that you have sent Christ to raise us up out of the pit, to to seat us in the heavenly places, to break the power of sin and death, and to fill our lives with joy. Make us a people who are joyful in all circumstances, rejoicing in you. Make us a people who carry that joy out into the world this week as we go to our homes, to our jobs, and to our classrooms. We ask all these things in Christ's name, and we say amen. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.
Hey, thanks again for joining us for worship today. It was so good to be with you again. We hope you have a wonderful Sunday. If you are visiting with us, either live or online, man, we're so excited you're here and we would love to connect with you. Just text the word welcome to 813-710-4441. We have opened a video venue in the loft that is a mask only, always venue with social distancing of chairs. It'll be open during both services. We're asking attendees to enter the loft through the loft outside door, unless you have kids to drop off. Hey, invite your friends and families to Bay Life for movie night on the lawn, Sunday, December 20th at 6.30 p.m. Now, it will be in our overflow parking lot, which has plenty of room to stretch out and social distance. Now, obviously, there's a lot more going on at Bay Life, so let me call your attention to the digital bulletin. You can access the bulletin through the QR code in the corner of this video or by going to baylife.org weekly. It has all the information of everything going on here at Bay Life. You can scroll through the bulletin, and if you see something you're interested in, you can click on the included links to get more information or to sign up for the events. Hey, if you're not following us on social media, you should take a quick second and join our community on Facebook and Instagram. You get access to all sorts of cool new things like the resource page, new podcast, or this past week, Mark and Eleanor joined us uh, Tuesday night on Facebook Live on their date night. Search of the sea sounds like Macromeryl. That doesn't sound like Cracker Barrel at all, Eleanor. Macromeryl? Cracker Barrel? Macker? What is Macromeryl? It rhymes with Cracker Barrel. Uh, Starts with a C and sounds yeah, like Macromeryl. When you play that Mark, game, you, you say that all the time. Hey, this past week, our social media team asked you to tell us your favorite Christmas song. So, I thought I would take your songs and add a few more and play a little Name That Tune with two ladies who I know are Christmas music fanatics. Now, this is my daughter, Tegan, uh, and this is Tia, who runs our social media here at Bay Life. Now, we're gonna see which one of them can guess the name of the song first. Now, feel free to play with us, whether you're in the room or at home, and see if you can guess the song before they do. All right, here we go. You guys ready? Yes. All right, first one. Gloria. Um, angels and we have our the Herald Angels sing. You guys were supposed to be like awesome at this. You <laughs> started with the hard one. Angels from the realms of glory. That's not on my playlist. <laughs> yeah, nah. Okay, good. Can you tell me who's by? Who's who's singing this? Michael Bublé. Michael Bublé or the piano guys. Okay, good. We're off. We are off to a great start. Hopefully, you got that one at home. All right, here we go. Ready? Now. Come on, Tegan. Oh shoot, I got this one. Um, Somebody at home should have gotten this one by now. Come on, Tegan. Come on, Tegan. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not the name of it. God rest you, Mary. Oh my oh. head. Okay. That is on my playlist. Also? It's pentatonic. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's embarrassing. Okay. <laughs> Cam, do you want to come out here and try this? Because I don't know if you're going to do worse. 
All right, here we go. Mama made Christmas good at our house. Christmas shoes? Christmas shoes. Christmas shoes. Not on my playlist. Way to redeem yourself. Thank Nicely you. done. That's on my playlist. All I want for Christmas. All I want for Christmas. All right, nicely done, Tia. Way to join the game. <laughs> Good job. Ready? Ready. Jingle Bell Rock? No. Oh, mistletoe! It's mistletoe! It's mistletoe! Flashback. If I were to play Jingle Bell Rock, could you get it? What? From Jeremy Camp? Oh, sure. Okay. Seems a little unfair. Hey, thanks for interacting with us online this week. We enjoyed connecting with you. Now as we close, here are a couple things we want to remind you about. We hope you've been encouraged as we've gathered together this morning. We continue to pray for you and encourage you to continue to pray for our city, our nation, our leaders, and our world. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord, and we'll see you next week, live or online, Sunday at 9 and 1045.